0: Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that there's freedom in your hand for us, that uh, it's your good pleasure to serve us with freedom. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you poured out of yourself the spirit that is full of liberty. Lord, I just thank you that that spirit could be declared today, and that spirit could well up inside of everyone that listens to that message, that they could walk um, in the liberty that Christ has come to give them. Um, Amen. You guys will find out by the end of the message why the title of the message, if you looked on the title of the message and thought, Greg don't know how to spell freedom, um, because I spelled freedom, F-R-E-E-E-E-E-D-O-M, and so, no, I I did that on purpose, and by the end of the message, you'll see why the name of the message is FREEDOM, you'll see why at the end, um, why we did it that way, yeah, see, you already know. Glory to God. Um, But we'll begin with, uh, we're going to take where we're working from, from Galatians chapter 5, and uh, we'll start with verse 1. For those of you that want to follow, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, says, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, justified by performing the works of the law, you are fallen from grace. For For we, through the Spirit, it's through the Spirit that we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Um, and there's a whole lot we could say about these passages. The, the part I want to focus in on is verse 1 that says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty that Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And, and probably all of us could agree with this statement, but there's freedom for you in Christ, right? I think all of us are like, yes, there's freedom for us in Christ um maybe the metal meets the road a little bit when we talk about experiencing the freedom right I think sometimes we can feel like we've been entangled with bondage we can feel like we're entangled again with bondage we could be like that song that's like this is not my beautiful wife this is not my beautiful house my gosh how did I get here I mean we could find ourselves entangled again with bondage and next thing we know we're like how did I get here and so there's freedom for you in Christ There's something in Christ that serves us with freedom and keeps us from being entangled with the weak and beggarly elements of this world. There's something there that will keep you. Like you don't keep yourself. You behold Christ and there's something in Christ that will keep you from being entangled again in the weak and beggarly elements of the world. The freedom that Paul talks about there, that he talks about us experiencing, it's not just freedom from performing the works of the law to be justified. That's not the only thing he's talking about there. That's part of it. But if you notice, he he said to the Galatians, how can you go back to the weak and beggarly elements of the world? And so in these passages, he's picking out the work of the law they were trying to work, thinking that that would justify him. But he's not just talking about uh, freedom from performing the works of the law to be justified. Listen, you can see that you can't be justified by performing the works of the law and still be in bondage to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. I encounter people all the time that have a revelation that we don't have to perform the works of the law, but I promise you, they work in a whole lot of other things trying to serve themselves with life. And so you could have some revelation that you can't be justified by performing the works of the law, but you could still find yourself entangled with uh, the bondage that come from the weak, being busy with the, the weak and beggarly elements of the world. So the, the weak and beggarly elements of the world, what are those things? What is the weak and beggarly elements of the world? The weak and beggarly elements of the world are things like touch not, taste not, handle not. Things like observing days and months and times and years. And those things, they come from the belief that the flesh can satisfy its desire for life through its own strength. That's where those elements come from. They come from a belief that's in the world that the life this flesh desires, this flesh can attain to that life through its own strength. That's where those things come from. And so the weak and beggarly elements of the world is anything you look to for the purpose of gathering peace and love and joy to yourself that is dependent on the strength you can see in your flesh? I'm going to say that again. The weak and beggarly elements of the world, it's not just talking about performing the works of the law, it's anything that we look to for the purpose of gathering peace and love and joy to ourselves that is dependent on the strength we see in our flesh or the strength we see in the world around us. They're weak and they're beggarly, Paul would come and say, okay? If you look at the Galatians, the Galatians thought if they could be circumcised in their flesh, if they could see that their flesh, the foreskin of their flesh had been circumcised, that that would be the strength that could serve them with the life they desired. That's a weak and a beggarly element thinking that you can find your desire for life satisfied through the strength of what you see in your flesh. It's weak and it's beggarly. Now, you might say, why? How come? Why is it weak? Why is it beggarly? Why is touch not, taste not beggarly? Why is observing days and months and times and and years and things like circumcision of the flesh, why are those things beggarly? Well, the apostle Paul He calls those things weak and beggarly because they could never satisfy the flesh's desire for long life. The flesh is desiring long life. And if you want to know what long life is, that means the flesh is desiring for it to be glorified and for it to live and never die. That's what the flesh is desiring. It's desiring an incorruptible life. And Paul comes and calls those things weak and beggarly because he says they can't satisfy the flesh with long life. They can't overcome death in the flesh. They can't put the flesh to rest. They can't give the flesh what it's really after. So they're weak, right? They're weak because they can't give the flesh what it wants. You ever thought that you needed something to have life? You ever find that when you got it, it didn't give you the life you thought you could gain? You ever find that happen to you? Well, that means it's weak and it's beggarly. It means it didn't really possess the power to satisfy what you wanted. Otherwise, your desire for life would have been quenched. And so Paul says in Galatians, he says that the only thing that has the strength to satisfy the flesh's desire for life, the flesh's desire for peace and love and joy, the only thing that has the strength to satisfy that is the faith that came in Jesus Christ. The only thing that can give us a certainty of life the only thing that can give us a surety that we're going to see life manifest in us, no matter what's going on around us, the only thing that contains the power to give us a certainty that life is coming forth in us is the faith that was revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can do it, Paul says. That's why he says, for we, through the Spirit, wait for the certainty of righteousness by faith. That's what he's talking about there. He's talking about that hope in that word It's certainty. He's saying the certainty of the life we long for. It's not found in the weak and beggarly elements of the world. It's not found in touch not, taste not, handle not. It's not found in the strength you can see in your flesh or the strength you can bring forth through your flesh. It's not found in those things. None of those things can give you a certainty of long life. The only thing that can give you a certainty of peace and love and joy, the only thing that can give you a certainty of long life, the only thing that can promise you death will be overcome in your life and in your flesh is the faith that came in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that that faith that came in Jesus Christ gives us a certainty? Well, we saw it put to the test on the cross, didn't we? There he is in the midst of all death. There he is needing peace and love and joy. Well, what gave him those things? And did we see that it could do what it said it would do? Well, it did because it brought him out of the grave put his flesh to rest on the cross. It filled him with a peace and a love and a joy, even while he was nailed to the tree. The psalmist reveals the heart of Jesus in Psalm 23, saying, my cup runneth over, saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I do not lack anything. You prepare a table for me in the midst of this death. And so we see that faith has been proved, right? Glory to God, man. It's been proved. So, How can we find ourselves remaining in the liberty Christ came to give us? How can we find that being worked out in us? How can we find ourselves continuing in freedom, walking in freedom? How do we end up? What causes us to end up being entangled with bondage again to begin with? I mean, how can that even happen after we're in freedom? Right? I mean, how did those guys in Galatia? end up entangled again with the yoke of bondage how did that happen to them if you read what paul says he says in galatians 3 he's like christ was clearly put on display in your midst you clearly saw in christ crucified that the strength of the flesh cannot serve you with life how is it then that after seeing that clearly that they could be entangled again with the yoke of bondage This is a powerful thing in our lives, brothers and sisters, because I promise you what we what we want to see happen in our lives is for us to walk in freedom. And we don't just want that freedom day to day. Right. I'm not looking for a fickle kind of a freedom. I'm not looking for a day to day kind of freedom. I ain't looking for no fair weather kind of a freedom where, you know, if the weather is fair, I feel free. But if the weather ain't fair, now all of a sudden I ain't free. That ain't the kind of freedom I want. And I want the kind of freedom that keeps me from being entangled with the yoke of bondage. So how can we see that sorted out in us? And the way we we'll would get a good look at this is to look at how is it the Galatians were able to be bewitched to begin with. He says they were bewitched, but what caused them to be bewitched, right? It's not like they accidentally were bewitched. There's something that came in that bewitched them. Why did it have power? Because when we can see how that dynamic works, it's going to give us eyes to see our own life and see how things want to try to bewitch us also. That's the power of these letters. No, those letters weren't written directly to us, but the temptation is common to all people. And so those letters give us some insight into how the serpent tries to work his devices to entangle us again with bondage. You heard me? Follow that? You with me? Um, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. It's talking about Jesus partaking of the same death that we were partaking of. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning he had a body that could die, so that he could take part with us in that death. So that in him taking part with us in that death, he could destroy the devil, him who had the power of death. That's what that verse is saying. And deliver, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See that word bondage again? That same word bondage that we just saw in the passages in Galatians. So the the author of Hebrews, notice that phrase, subject to bondage. And so the devil had something in mankind. He had something in us. He was able to entangle us with bondage. He was able to entangle us with bondage, and the way he was able to entangle us with bondage was through death, the author of Hebrews says. So it's death that entangles us with bondage. The yoke of bondage comes upon a person through fear of death. That's what he says there. It's through the fear of death. The way we fall prey to the weak and beggarly elements of the world is through the fear of death. In fact, you can't be entangled with the weak and beggarly elements of the world unless you're first filled with the fear of death. You have to first be filled with that before any of that stuff will even make sense to you. And I want to say, some of you are sitting here now, and no, no, that don't make sense to me. Hey, you're right. It don't make sense to me either. Touch not, taste not, handle not does not make sense to us in the presence of an imperishable life. Touch not, taste not, handle not only makes sense to us in the presence of a perishable life. It only, it only looks like the way if we're busy with the perishable life. The weak and beggarly elements of the world only make sense to us if we think that we're separated from the good thing we need to have a life full of peace and love and joy. That's the only time it can make sense to us. Touch not, taste not, handle not, don't make sense to you if you already possess an incorruptible life. Being circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, don't make no sense to you if you're already possessing an incorruptible life thinking that you need to observe days and months and times and years, thinking you need to perform the works of the law, thinking you need to perform the feast days and doing all those kinds of things, that don't make sense to you if you already possess an incorruptible life, a life that carries with it a certainty that it will serve you with peace and love and joy. How anybody going to come and tell you you need to perform rituals to have life if you already have an incorruptible life? And that life already carries the certainty that it's going to serve you with peace and love and joy. How is anybody going to come and convince you, you've got to do anything to have life? It won't make no sense. Try persuading eternal life that it's got to do something to have life. You know why Jesus wouldn't come down off the cross? Because it didn't make sense to him that he could have life through the strength of the flesh. You know why it didn't make sense to him? He is eternal life. He already had an incorruptible life. It don't make sense that I got to do something to get it. I have it. You see what I'm saying? Right? It doesn't resonate. If you look at the Galatians, they were entangled again with the yoke of bondage through fear. They first were filled with fear. And you might think, well, how were they filled with fear? Well, what filled them with fear was the Judaizers came and told them that they didn't have what they needed to be justified with life. They said, no, 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 no. You don't have, you have not been justified with life. The only way you can be justified with life is if you get circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And so that filled them with the fear, a fear that they were separated from something they needed to be served with the life they desired. And it was through that fear of thinking they didn't have what they needed to have life. They didn't have the good thing they needed to have a life full of peace and love and joy. It was through the fear that they were separated from what they needed, that they were entangled again or bewitched thinking that it'll be through the strength I can see in my flesh that that will justify me with life. That's why they were bewitched. That's how they ended up being bewitched. Now, listen, guys, the, the fear of death is not, and I've probably said this a bunch of times, but it, it bears repeating because this is the crux of the matter for all of us in our lives and in dwelling in freedom. But the fear of death is not just about being afraid to die one day. That, that's not what the fear of death is. It's not just, well, I'm afraid that one day uh, I'm going to die. The fear of death is the fear that comes from thinking you are separated from the good thing you need to have a life full of peace and love and joy. I'm going to say that again. The fear of death is the fear that comes to you when you think you're separated from the good thing you need to have a life full of peace and love and joy. That's You ever notice how you feel anxiety when you think something you need is far from you? <laughs> you, you ever wonder what that is, why you feel it? You ever felt that gripping? That's the fear of death. You ever find your mind in going to all the things you need to do or all the things you need to get or all the things you need to have in order for that to go away? That's you being entangled again with the weak and beggarly elements of the world on account of you thinking you're separated from what you need to have a life full of peace and love and joy. And so that's the fear of death. The, The fear of death is the fear that comes to you When you think God isn't there with you, it's the fear that comes to you when you think God's face is hidden from you, that the affliction you see in your life is a sign that God has abhorred you and that he doesn't hear you when you cry out to him. That's the fear. Death speaks to us. And you know what death is trying to speak to us and tell us? That God's not there with us. And do you know what that means? It means if God's not there with us, then life is not present with us. That's what the death tries to tell us. God is not present there with you. He's not in the midst of this thing with you. And what that means to our hearts is that if God ain't there in the midst with us, then life isn't present with us. The peace and the love and the joy that we need, or what we need to have peace and love and joy, is not present with us. God with you is life with you. That's the connection that it draws, right? His God is Father, and He's a person, and we see that. But the power behind seeing God with you isn't just some dudes with you. It's that a dude who has an incorruptible life that will serve you with peace and love and joy is with you. And if He's present with you, then guess what? You can't be separated from the good thing you need to have life. You can't be separated from life at all. That's the power there. Well, you ain't going to be entangled with i got to get circumcised in the flesh of my foreskin if you see god present with you it ain't gonna make sense to you neither is anybody gonna be able to convince you you got to give some money at church so that god will be with you like i promise you all that doctrine about how we could be blessed if we would give money to the church that wouldn't make sense if we already thought we had everything do you see how that would have kept us in liberty we would have never come under the yoke of bondage Thinking you can be blessed by the money that you give is a weak and beggarly element. That don't mean that we're not generous. That don't mean that we don't find a desire in our heart to give and that since we have all things in Christ, we find the strength to give whenever we feel we want to give. But we ain't giving to be blessed. We give it because we already have all things. That's the point. If you give in to be blessed, listen, man, you are giving out of obligation. And you're busy with the weak and beggarly elements of the world. Because I promise you, your giving can't satisfy the life that the flesh desires. Your giving can't serve you with the peace and love and joy you desire. It's weak. Perishable. So God with you equals life with you. Well, if you're encountering death and tribulation, you know what the carnal mind concludes? The carnal mind concludes it must mean God's not there. If God with you equals life with you and all you see is death, You see the equation to the carnal mind? Well, then God's not here with me. He's not present. And if God's not here, then that also means life isn't here. The life I need isn't here either. Now we start thinking, well, what can I do to get life? You see how touch not, taste not starts making sense? (laughs) Right? You guys following that? Jumping to uh, Romans, and I think I just now realized it, but we're, oh, well, the author of Hebrews remains unnamed, so I can't say we're all, they're all Paul. If you think it's Paul, glory to God. A wise man once convinced me that declaring it was Paul might be an error, and I couldn't argue his point. You guys know me. I can always argue a point. Have you guys realized that about me? Like, I can dissect the thing and come back with something. It's not often that somebody says something to me, and I'm like, hmm, you know what? I think that's just the end of the conversation. That's just checkmate. But a wise guy once said to me, Greg, and I used to always fight to prove who wrote that letter, and I actually think I can prove it, but I couldn't deny the wisdom, which was, Greg, if the Holy Spirit saw fit not to tell us who wrote the letter, is there maybe a reason? And I was like, you can't you can't argue with wisdom when it comes from above, right? I mean, you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah. What can I say, man? <laughs> you can't argue with that. If you like to argue about who wrote the Letter of Hebrews, feel free. It's just a funny antidote to this conversation, right? If you believe it's Paul, hi, hallelujah. If you believe it's John or James, if you believe whoever, hallelujah. Um, Romans chapter eight verse twelve. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. And I'm adding in my own uh, commentary after that. Brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Why? Why is he saying we aren't debtors to live after the flesh? It's because our eyes have been opened to see God in our midst shepherding our lives. So why would we be looking to the strength of the flesh when our eyes have been popped open to see that we're not a lamb being led away to the slaughter but that the good shepherd is there with us serving us with life, preparing a table for us that's full of life. That's why we're not debtors to the flesh anymore, because though we were blind through the carnal mind, though we didn't comprehend God with us before because of the carnal mind, because our minds were filled with the death we saw everywhere. Listen, through God coming in Christ Jesus and condemning death in the flesh, in the resurrection, we see clearly now God is with us, and we see he is shepherding our lives. So we're no longer debtors to trying to have life through our own strength. Hallelujah. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If your mind is set on the spirit of truth or the spirit of life, do you know what that will do to your body? It will put your flesh to rest. It will cause you to cease from all the things you were doing to try to gain life. The spirit will do that to you. Do you know why? It's called the spirit of life. And if you start looking at the spirit that's filled with life, it will cause you to no longer labor to gain life. It will cause you to see, oh, the life I desire is right there. That's how your body, your body's mortified from its deeds. That just means for your flesh to be put to rest. That's what it means there, okay? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit is powerful right there, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I mean, you know why we cry, Abba, Father? It ain't because someone told us to. Do you know what causes a person to cry, Abba, Father? They see everlasting Father in the resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus, Father was glorified in our midst. It heals our blindness, whereas we didn't see Father with us working to serve us with life, the resurrection all of a sudden manifests in our midst that the Father doth work. And we cry out Abba because we see Him now. We see Him. We didn't see Him before, so we didn't cry out Abba. But now we see Him in our midst, working, giving us life. And so our hearts cry out Abba. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Suffering with Jesus, there is not talking about you got to go be nailed to a cross, also, right? I know we have like, I think in in Mexico, like once a year they have people that try and reenact the crucifixion, and they they do that because they think that verse talking about us physically suffering like um, he suffered on the cross. That when Paul, you got to remember, Paul talked about the fellowship of sufferings in his other letter. So you want to connect those concepts. What Paul's saying there is that if we have fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, how do you have fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings? You, have, you see the faith that was in his heart when he was being nailed to the cross. And you have intimacy with the faith that was in his heart when he was being nailed to the cross. And through you being intimate with the faith, that was in him when he was being nailed to the cross, you are fellowshipping with him in his sufferings, right? So if we partake with Jesus in the faith that was in him when he was nailed to the tree, if we partake with him in that faith, then we also are going to be glorified with him. Because it wasn't the sufferings that caused him to be glorified, it was the faith that was in his heart that caused him to be glorified. That's how you know the fellowship of sufferings is to partake with him in his faith. That's why Paul said we live by the faith of the Son of God. That's why he said we live by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's why he says faith came in Jesus. So that's what it means to suffer with him. Right? Glory to God. Hallelujah, man. Lay down that cross, man. If you want to take up your cross, like Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not telling you to go pick up a real cross. He's telling you, partake with me in this faith. That's why he says in Revelation, buy of me gold. It's been tried in the fire. It's been proved. It's been put to the test. It will anoint your eyes with eye salve. This faith will cause you to see the Father with you working. This faith will cause you to see yourself clothed upon by the life of God's Lamb. Partake with me in this faith. That's the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what it means to suffer with him. You believe the same thing he believed when he was being nailed to the tree. What did he believe? He believed the power to have life was not found in this mortal body. The power to be clothed upon with life was not found in him coming down off the cross or preserving his own life. He believed that the father wasn't far from him. He believed that the father's face wasn't hid from him. He believed that the death of the cross was not a sign that the father abhorred him. He believed the father was with him. He believed the father was preparing a table of life for him in fact he saw the father there while he was at the cross preparing a table and that's why the death of the cross was not lifted up in his heart that's why he wasn't stung with the fear of death that's why he cried out abba instead of trying to come down off the cross that's why he says my cup runneth over he said my cup runneth over because he saw god there How did he see God? He didn't live by sight. He lived by faith. Faith became his sight. And so on that cross, the faith that he shared with the Father from the beginning manifested in his heart. It animated his sight. And he saw the Father doth work. He observed the Sabbath on the cross. And it wasn't, I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest. No, he had eyes to see. The Father doth work. And that put him to rest. Oh, man. Yes, I'm a man possessed. Notice again in verse 16 of those passages in Romans 8. Paul connects bondage with fear. There's that word bondage again. So when you go back and study the scriptures for yourself, or you listen to this message again, notice he mentions bondage in Galatians. Notice he mentions bondage in Hebrews. Notice he mentions bondage here in Romans. Notice how he connects them all, right? So Paul here connects bondage with fear, just like Hebrews connected bondage with the fear of death, right? And so Paul says there's a spirit that's unto fear, and there's a spirit unto a person crying out, Abba. There's a spirit that is unto a person busy in themselves with the weak and beggarly elements of the world, and there's a a spirit that's unto liberty being manifested in a person. When you think of spirit, think of a vital principle or a truth that animates your thoughts and your sight. And so what Paul's saying is there's a spirit that'll make you blind to God with you. And because you don't see God with you, that spirit will will be unto fear manifesting in your heart. But there's another spirit that will heal your blindness, that will animate your sight with eyes to see, That God the Father is there with you that he is present with you and that his life is there present with you also and that spirit will be unto you crying out Abba and being filled with liberty instead of being filled with fear and being busy with the weak and beggarly elements of the world hallelujah there's a a movie named Braveheart I don't know if you guys have seen Braveheart That fits right in with all this and you know you guys know me I don't normally bring culture into what I'm preaching and I don't think it's necessary but I gotta be honest I watched Braveheart when I was on my sabbatical with my wife she had never really seen it that movie moves me Um, and even when I was putting together this message and I was praying about it meditating on it there's a little three minute clip that I watched from Braveheart and I've seen this a million times and I watched it. You know what happened to me all over again? I cried like a baby. And then I watched it again, right after. And I thought, surely all the tears have come out. I'm good. No, I cried like a baby again. And immediately, I'm, I start connecting with the Lord Jesus. And I start seeing this dynamic that went on with Braveheart and those people. And I'm seeing this dynamic between us and the Lord Jesus. And so, just follow with me. And I don't know, I, I want to post that three-minute clip on the Bible study page. But not everybody wants to see that kind of a thing. Um, so if I post it, I'll put on top of it R-rated. It's not R-rated because they're scantily glad people. It's R-rated because of the violence. So if you don't like seeing violence, don't click on the video. But since I brought up crying like a little baby, um, I think I might post it. Uh, but have a strong stomach, okay? But I don't know if you guys know the story of Braveheart. If you do, just bear with me for for my explanations. setting the background but Braveheart is about uh, a guy named William Wallace a man named William Wallace now William Wallace was a Scottish guy and my good friend Brad um, in Tulsa he may get a kick out of me talking about William Wallace and the Scottish people because he's Scottish Um, but William Wallace was a Scottish guy and he lived um, at a time when Scotland was in bondage or enslaved to England they were enslaved to England, they were in bondage to England. And what happened there through that bondage, through being enslaved, everyone in Scotland had come under the fear of England. Everyone there was afraid of of what could happen to them from England. And so you could say the fear of the harm that could come to them and that could come to their loved ones if they didn't submit themselves under England's reign over them, the fear that was there, that fear was gripping them, and they were under the fear of England. They saw the threat of what England could do to them, their wives, their kids, their town, and because of what they saw England could do to them, they were filled with fear, and that enslaved them, that fear. Now, This guy, William Wallace, maybe it's Braveheart that's in me. No, it's the Lord Jesus. But what I want to say is you can only make a movie like Braveheart if the spirit of the sun has been poured out in the earth because it it kind of coincides, coincides really with that. This guy, William Wallace, became a man possessed with freedom. He became a man who was no longer afraid. He became a man who was no longer enslaved because the fear of what England could do to him was no longer present with him because England did the worst thing they could do to him and he lost everything when a duke of England slit his wife's throat and killed her. And so he lost everything. And in losing everything, he was delivered from fear. And he became a man possessed with freedom because he had lost everything. You know, there's a a famous Janis Joplin song with the lyric that goes, Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. If you think you've got something to lose, fear has something in you. You see, even Janis Joplin, the only reason she could say that is because of God. She doesn't even know what she's saying, but she recognized the dynamic. I say this all the time, but I don't even think you can preach the unadulterated gospel unless you first lost everything and counted it as gain. Because that fear will always have something in you. The fear of what will happen to the ministry. The fear of what will happen to you. The fear of how will you survive. The fear of how you're going to live. All those fears will taint what you say. And so you can't actually preach like Jesus unless you've got nothing to lose unless you're free nobody can do anything to me even should they nail me to a tree they can't take my life freedom the closest thing to that brave heart crying out freedom like that i think becky and i when we were dating went to a concert a rage against the machine concert i don't recommend to go listen to them they're angry But you have to understand i i used to be i had misdirected hostility when i was a young guy and we would get kicks out of going into the pit and beating each other to a pulp well at the end of this rage against the machine concert they played a song they have called freedom and it's just building 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 at the end they flipped the lights on so you could see who you've been beating on the whole time because it's in the dark you don't know who you're hitting you just know everybody's bleeding well, they flipped the lights on so you could see the people in the face that you smashing into. And all of a sudden, they tear into. Freedom! Yeah! And everybody's just. Uh, after the fact, I'm looking back and I'm like, I'm not sure that was freedom. <laughs> Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. So this guy, William Wallace, had nothing else to lose. They already took everything from him, so he became a man possessed with liberty. He had no fear, and he started conquering the armies of England everywhere, and he started taking back all the Scott, Scott, Scottish land from England and Something started happening when he did that. The legend of William Wallace started going forth, and other Scottish people started becoming filled with boldness and you know how a legend is next thing you know, William Wallace goes from being like five foot ten you know to like seven foot eight. And even in the movie, people would say, you're not William. I am William Wallace. And they're like, you're not that big. At first they were confused, but then even more freedom came inside of them. Look at this guy. And so he began galvanizing the people. The Scottish people. They started being delivered from the fear of England. They began to be filled with boldness. Seeing William Wallace isn't afraid. He's not afraid of what England can do to him he's got a freedom he's got a boldness I want that And the spirit of William Wallace began to be born in all the Scottish people and they began to be galvanized and they began to think we ain't got to take this they were no longer afraid the spirit of fear had been removed from them and so the king of England is like this ain't good how can we enslave these people if they're not afraid we're not actually interested in fighting all the time we just want to reign, and it's easy to reign if they're just afraid so how are we going to fill them with fear? Well, the King of England decided, well, if we can capture this guy, William Wallace, that's galvanizing all the people, um, and we can make an example out of him in front of everyone, then we can fill the people with fear once again. Because then their great champion. We can make an example out of him in their midst. That will enslave them to fear all over again, and then we can reign over them again. So they hatched a plan to get William Wallace. And it's the only time in the movie where you see the guy's spirit actually broken. Because it was the Prince of Scotland that betrayed him. A guy that he had laid down his life for. And that guy hatched with England a plan so he could have money. A plan to betray William Wallace. And that's how they captured him. And at the end when they captured him, he saw that it was the Prince of Scotland that did that to him. And you could just see he's dejected. He couldn't believe it. Here he was laying down his life for these people. And his own people did this to him. But he quickly bounced back. So the, the, the king's plan was, we need to show the people that this guy, William Wallace, is afraid what we can do to him. That it's all show. It was He's a fair weather freedom guy. That he's only not afraid if nothing bad can happen to him. And so they set about a plan to prove to all the Scottish people that this guy is afraid. And so what they wanted William Wallace to do in front of all the people is they wanted him to cry out for mercy. They wanted him to beg for mercy because that would be the evidence he was afraid. And if their champion's afraid, fear is going to get right back into them. And so they come to William Wallace. Listen, man, if you just beg for mercy in front of all the people in the public square, we'll... Put you to death swiftly. You won't feel a thing. We'll take you out. But should you not beg for mercy in front of all the people, we're going to torture you in heinous ways until you do. And the whole plan was for all the people to see William Wallace beg for mercy so they could all see he was afraid. Because then that same spirit of fear could be born in them also all over again and they could be enslaved for all time. So they start, William Wallace won't beg for mercy. So they bring him out and strap him to the torture board in the middle of the public square. And they start torturing this guy in unspeakable ways. And he won't cry for mercy. And the people in the square are so moved by the the torture that they're bringing to this guy that they all start crying out for mercy for this guy. They were afraid for this guy. Even his warrior friends who he had fought with, They also weren't afraid. They were so moved by the torture this guy was going through that they start saying, just cry out for mercy, man. Just cry out for mercy. And then the the guy leading the torture, he he sees that William Wallace wants to say something. And he's convinced that he's going to cry out for mercy. And he stops. And he says, the prisoner wants to say something. You know that gloating of victory? You have to understand, they cut out his insides. And so his insides are outside. And so he's grasping for air, his last breath to say something. You know what he says? It ain't mercy. Freedom! (laughs) Now listen. The King of England's playing backfire in that moment. In that, I see a lot of parallels between William Wallace and the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus was born of a woman born under the law of sin and death. He entered into a world and came in a body that subjected all of us. We were enslaved through fear, through death. and We were in bondage all of our days. Well, he comes into the earth and he's not afraid of that death. He comes into the earth as our champion. He comes into the earth as our hero. And he begins delivering people from the fear of death. And the way he begins delivering people from the fear of death is he begins sending the sin away from people that is stinging them with death. Thus demonstrating that in him is something that reigns over death. In him is something that's greater than death. And he started delivering all the people from the fear of death. Just like William Wallace did with the Scottish people. Well, the devil saw this going down. And just like the king of England, the devil said, I'm, I'm going to crucify the son of God in the midst of the people. And in doing that, I'm going to sting him with fear. And in him being stung with fear, what's going to happen is the spirit of fear will dwell in mankind forever. And they'll be enslaved to me for all eternity. Jesus wanted, Satan wanted Jesus to submit unto fear in the midst of the great congregation so that we would be in bondage to him for all eternity by seeing our Messiah submitted to fear. Then he's afraid. We, we all know the story. A lot of us have seen the passion. They brutalized Jesus. They beat him to a pulp. Beyond recognition, they beat him. Before he even gets up on the cross, they press the crown of thorns down on him. He carries a cross up a hill. Then they nail his wrists and his feet to a pole, to a cross. I don't know if you guys realize, but what happens is, is you suffocate to death because you can't hold up the weight, and so you cave in on yourself. He did all that to sting Jesus with the fear of death. But Satan's plan backfired. Because as the scripture says, death had nothing in Jesus. Death had nothing in Jesus. Death couldn't put Jesus in bondage to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. Because fear couldn't be conceived in his heart. He didn't have the spirit that was under fear. He didn't have the spirit that couldn't see that God was there with him in the midst of the cross. He wasn't blind. He saw Abba. That's why he cried out Abba. He had the spirit of adoption. Jesus had the spirit that he shared with the Father from the beginning. And that spirit gave him eyes to see he wasn't alone on the cross. He saw the Father was with him. He saw the Father doth work. He saw the Father had prepared life for him right in the midst of that cross. You know, and just as William Wallace wasn't submitted unto fear, but he cried out freedom with his last breath, Jesus wasn't submitted under the fear of death, but he cried out Abba with his last breath. He cried out Abba because he saw the Father there to shepherd his life. You know, the serpent thought, certainly, certainly if I throw the full weight of death against this guy, that it will conceive fear in him. And it will put him in bondage to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. The king of England thought the same thing about Braveheart. Certainly, if I torture this guy, he's going to be filled with fear and beg for mercy. Now, you know, you know what happened after William Wallace cried out freedom? Something powerful happened. The King of England's plan backfired because it wasn't fear that was instilled in the hearts of the Scottish people because Braveheart didn't cry out for mercy. He wasn't afraid of what they could do to him. Do it all to me. I'm not afraid. I've lost everything. And so he wasn't afraid. And something happened to the Scottish people that day. William Wallace cried out freedom with his last breath. His words, freedom. In the face of all death, demonstrating that he wasn't afraid, it pierced the hearts of all the people there. It pierced their hearts. You see, the Word was made flesh. The spirit that was in William Wallace came out of him and began to dwell in all the people there. And so it wasn't the spirit of fear that was born in all the Scottish people. They saw the spirit of William Wallace and how he wasn't afraid of what England could do to him. And that spirit that wasn't afraid of what England could do to them was born in them. The spirit that was undelivered, liberty was born in them. They became animated with the spirit of freedom and they were delivered from the spirit of fear that left them in bondage to England. You know what happened? They were liberated from being enslaved to England. (laughs) The seed that was in William Wallace reproduced after its own kind. Now listen, guys, this is a movie and a story that we, we see and we account for, but there's spiritual matters at work here, and this is why I bring it up. Just as all those guys in Scotland had the same spirit that was in William Wallace, just like their hearts were pierced, with the spirit of William Wallace. Listen, man, in seeing Jesus, our hearts are also pierced. The spirit that was in him reproduced after its own kind. We saw this guy wasn't afraid of death. We saw fear wasn't conceived in his heart. And we saw the reason fear wasn't conceived in his heart is because the spirit gave him eyes to see the Father there working. He never stops, he never stops working. Even when I don't see it, he's working. So the same spirit that was in Jesus reproduced after its own kind. The spirit of the son was poured out on all flesh, and our hearts became pierced with the words that came out of his mouth when he cried out, "Abba!" That same spirit that was in him that was not under fear, that was not under bondage, but was under liberty, became born in us, and we began to have eyes to see God is present with us. Yea, though we walk through a valley that's shadowed by death, our eyes see Abba with us. We see life is present with us. We see the good thing we need to have peace and love and joy is present with us. Abba! (laughs) See that same spirit in Jesus that even on the cross saw a table of life that same spirit is in us and what it does is it pops open our eyes guys it heals our blindness and we see a table of life even though we're in a world shadowed by death and the incorruptible life becomes exalted in our eyes instead of the death abba becomes exalted in our eyes instead of the death and so fear isn't able to be conceived in our hearts Fear isn't able to take us captive. Fear isn't able to convince us that the weak and beggarly elements of the world can give us the life we long for. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, we have not been given a spirit that tells us God's face is hid from us. I'm connecting scriptures from all over the place, guys. We read these passages and we don't see how they're all connected. And then we don't read those, all the words into them. And we're left with what has become Christian cliches. Well, we're supposed to say it, so we will. Paul says, we have not been given a spirit that tells us God's face is hid from us. We have not been given a spirit that says to us our affliction is a sign God's not with us or that he's abhorring us. But we've been given the same spirit of the Lord Jesus. We've been given the spirit that has eyes to see the Father doth work. We've been given the spirit that cries out Abba because it sees Abba with us in the midst of tribulation serving us with life. Abba! In the movie Braveheart, you know, the king of England was dying. And his dying wish was to hear Braveheart cry out for mercy. And so he's in the, the I don't know what you want to call it, the fortress, where he, right by the square, so he could hear them torturing Braveheart, so he could hear Braveheart cry out for mercy. And right as Braveheart yells out, freedom. The king of England, his eyes pop open. He gulps on his, his last breath and he dies. The serpent, when he thought he was winning, because he was torturing our Messiah, and he thought certainly he was going to sting our Messiah with fear, and then that fear was going to reproduce after its own kind in all of us for all eternity. When Jesus cried out, Abba. The serpent's head was crushed. And the power that he had over us through the fear of death was destroyed. It's the spirit we've been given through Jesus that causes us to stand fast in liberty. It's the spirit that causes us to stand fast in liberty. If you're trying to stand fast in liberty, you're looking at your own work. And and what's being born is you is, I never stop. I never stop working, I never stop, I never stop working, even though you're here and you're working, I never stop. <laughs> you see? It, that spirit causes us to stand fast in liberty. It keeps us from being submitted to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. And the way it does that is it heals our sight. And we see God present with us in our midst. And if God is present, life is present. That's what it means. He prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Do you see how he's nailed to the tree, but he sees life? That's how the Spirit keeps us from the weak and beggarly elements of the world. It gives us eyes to see God as the shepherd of our lives, and that he's with us shepherding our lives. The moment that death comes to tempt us, the moment that our tribulation comes to tempt us, the moment that our hard times try to come and tell us, where's your God now? The moment that happens, we have the Spirit that will intercede in our hearts. And it causes us to see God there, serving us with life. And that keeps us from the weak and beggarly elements of the world. As it is written, The Lord is my shepherd. I come behind in no good thing." Listen, man, that was not a religious exercise. He didn't read on a board some way that that's what he's supposed to say. It wasn't an intellectual thing going on in him. He said that because he saw Abba. And he had the spirit that animated his sight to see Abba. The only way you're rested in the presence of death is if you see Abba. That's the only way you ain't taking up the sword is if you think Abba has taken up your life. The only way you ain't taken up the sword is if you see God's there and God's taken thought of your life. I see he's present with me, always, jeopardy my life, and that causes me to lie down in the tender green grass that quiets my heart from the fear that's in the world through death. Man, I love God. And what and and you see the carnal mind, the way we even interpret that. You know what I actually am saying? Man, I see God loves me. That's the when the mind of the spirit says, "Man, I love God." What they're really saying is, "Man, I see God loves me." Mm. Glory to God. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for pouring your spirit out onto us, the spirit that gives us eyes to see you with us, Father. Thank you, Father, for all the things in this world that come from the imagination of human beings that declare the truth. Lord, I thank you that we could see the truth through the gospel, and I thank you that your scripture says to the pure in heart, all things are pure. I thank you, Father, that we can go forward seeing everything through the eyes of the spirit, that we can begin to find you working to serve us with life in everything we encounter, Lord. I thank you, Father, that it's your good pleasure to stir us up by way of remembrance, that it's your good pleasure to intercede in our hearts as we walk in this world, reminding us, giving us eyes to see you there. Thank you, Father, that you're there giving us a shout out. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for upholding our life. Thank you for preparing a table for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you, guys. I love you guys. Thank you for coming.